Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dying is as much a physical as it is an emotional and spiritual process. In many ways, the hospice movement has highlighted the importance of working with all of these elements. Joining us today is Jonathan Stewart, a professor of psychiatry and geriatric medicine at the University of South Florida. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's begin with a thought and a question. It seems that at the end of the life, most people would think that psychiatric care, well, it may be too late to do any good. Is this true or not true? Not true at all. As you mentioned in your introduction, the dying process involves emotional and spiritual things as well as physical things. And there are tremendous need for psychiatric, psychological, spiritual, mental health care at the end of life in all phases from the point at which the person learns that he or she is terminally ill until the last moments of life. Lots of things come up. Many people go through periods of confusion. We call that delirium at the end of life. In fact, most people do. Often that's well tolerated, but sometimes it's very frightening. Depression is common, but by no means universal at the end of life. We deal with bereavement, with adjusting to the whole notion of dying and of being dead, as do the family, and often people need help with that phase of life. We have patients, many patients, with chronic psychiatric illnesses for whom you have to customize care at the end of life just to meet their needs. So there are plenty of needs. Unfortunately, Psychiatrists don't very often consult the hospices. At one point, a few years ago, this was looked at, and only about one-third of the hospice programs in the United States even had access to a psychiatrist as a consultant. So this is really a very underserved area, and hopefully an area of growth for us. The literature talks about the role of dealing with a person's transition into the concept of their own death, their own mortality. When a psychiatrist is involved, what does a psychiatrist do? Simplistically, it seems that if someone's depressed to start him on an antidepressant, it seems awfully late. Is it worth the time? You know, you bring up a couple of points. Depression is common at the end of life. Some some estimates will put it as high as about 30%, 20-30%. The most important concept, I suppose, though, is depression isn't universal. I think a lot of people, especially younger people, sort of simplistically figure anybody would be depressed about dying. The fact of the matter is that people cope with tragedies every day. That's just normal human existence. You can't live a trouble-free life. In fact, as tragedies go, death is the most universal of them. Everybody is going to die. And it's probably correct, as you've alluded to, to think of death as just another phase of life. Probably a frightening one, and I think we as a culture tend to really shy away from talking about death, but it is a universal phenomenon. In terms of the role of the psychiatrist, I suppose in some ways you can conceive of it in the same way as any other transition in life. People make all sorts of transition. Children have to go off to school. Most of them do fine. Some need a little bit more encouragement from the parents. Some might need a little bit of help. Same thing transitioning to the work environment. Same thing retiring. And death is the same. Most people cope with their own mortality quite well. Especially older people, you know, the concept is there. You know, everybody, when they get older, is thinking of these terms, are thinking about their own mortality. Some people need a little bit of help. When we talk about bereavement, it doesn't only apply to family and friends. It also applies to the patient himself or herself when they learn the news of a terminal illness. But the bottom line is most people do fairly well. Some people will need a little bit of help. Depression happens. Depression is, again, common but not universal. When it does happen, there's certainly time to intervene and there's certainly a lot of things to be done. Sometimes depressions are reactivated because people have lifelong histories of mood disorders, depression, bipolar illness, whatever. And this is a time when we can intervene and it's really not a whole lot different than intervening in other 
populations, other people, other patients, older, older patients. You may have to make some adjustments given the medical problems that people have. Sometimes depression is a reaction to the bad news, to this shift in the phase of life, beginning to think about mortality, making last arrangements, leaving a legacy, saying goodbye. People will often do pretty well just with time to talk to people. People will do well with a little bit of counseling. Now, the other thing is that many people do develop a significant depression that can be related to the medical problems. It can be related to some of the aspects of the terminal illness. For example, certain cancers are notorious for causing chemical changes in the brain that lead to depression, and these are very treatable. Sometimes with, again, with cancer, the serum calcium level becomes elevated. That can sometimes lead to a depression or at least the symptoms that look like depression. Sometimes cancer will spread to certain parts of the brain and cause depression. So these areas that we're concerned about, a psychiatrist is in a perfect position to be able to tease these out and select the right kind of treatment. It seems that one of the major variables is when the psychiatrist is actually brought in on the case. If the person is expected to live for another three months or maybe just another week or two, it could be a big difference. That's very, very true. One of the aspects of doing psychiatric care among terminally ill patients in hospice environments is that we're very, very time limited. Even if we have a matter of hours, I think we can always do something to offer comfort. And again, that's going to be as part of a team along with the palliative medicine specialist, the nurses, the chaplain, the social worker. There are always things to be done. As you know, antidepressants typically take several weeks to get working. So you're right, if there is depression and if it's the sort of depression that is going to require antidepressant medication, we'll select very carefully. We'll select if there's, as you mentioned, 10 weeks left, we'll look very carefully at whether the patient has had a positive response to a certain drug in the past. We'll select that one. If not, we'll look at family members' response to medications, or we'll just select things based on our best notion about how the patient is going to respond to it and tolerate it. If time is very, very short, like a matter of a week or less, Often we can still intervene, we can still treat depression with more rapidly acting things like psychostimulants. But again, the bottom line is that there are always things to be done to maximize the patient's comfort and maximize their ability to cope and to have a peaceful death and to have what we call a good death. A good death where there's good contact with the family, there's a positive life review, there's comfort, there's a death in the setting that the patient would want him or herself. A lot of times people are just afraid their pain is going to be out of control. So is that part of psychiatry's role as well? This is a very interdisciplinary area to work in, and I think virtually everything that comes up is everybody's responsibility. Some psychiatrists are more comfortable than others in dealing with pain management, and they will intervene. Other psychiatrists are probably going to be more in the position of assessing the patient, figuring out what are the most meaningful things to his or her comfort and working in collaboration with a palliative medicine specialist. But one thing we can do is we can pretty much assure all patients that they can die with minimal pain or pain-free. We're very, very good with pain management. One thing I find myself telling patients all the time is that we're going to be very effective with some of the really nasty symptoms, pain, trouble breathing, nausea, vomiting, fearfulness, anxiety. We're good with those things. We're not very good at improving people's energy, keeping them awake a little bit more, improving their strength. Those are things that are kind of tough. But again, we're good with most of the things that really bother people. The other thing I should mention is that people that are dying have the same sorts of predictors of developing a depression as other people. 
Plus one other thing, one of the major predictors of developing a depression is uncontrolled symptoms. So you'd be amazed how frequently I see a patient and for depression or even wish to hasten death, asking for euthanasia, suicidal ideation, and the whole problem is severe pain. We make a recommendation, we adjust the patient's opioid medications, 24 hours later they're not depressed anymore, they're in no rush to die, and they're making plans for things that they want to do in their last weeks. What about end-stage dementia? Psychiatry may not be called in to the case until towards the very end. These patients generally have difficulty communicating. It's hard to understand what they need. The families have watched their loved ones deteriorate over the course of time. Should this be dealt with in an inpatient facility? Can it be dealt with at home? What are your ideas about this, please? That's an important area. It's a very, very important area. And unfortunately, it's one that has been very underserved in hospice until very, very recently. We're learning more about dementia. Just to give you a notion, back in 1995, less than 1% of hospice enrollees were there because of end-stage dementia. At this point, it's probably up around 8 or 10% of enrollees, and we're seeing this as a more important area. To some extent, it's been a difficult area because the behavior problems, the psychiatric problems, if you will, tend to be a little bit different. And some patients with end-stage dementia will pose some difficult behavior problems in an inpatient hospice environment or in a nursing home with hospice overlay. The other thing is that it's often very, very difficult to prognosticate in dementia. We have a better notion than we did 10 years ago. We can usually tell somebody really doesn't have much of any language left at all, if not eating, if they've had some severe complications like pneumonia or pressure ulcers, we usually know that they have less than six months to live. But again, it has been difficult to prognosticate as compared to people with cancer or end-stage heart disease. Dealing with dementia is different. One of the major differences in dementia is, as you mentioned, Families have spent years seeing their loved ones sort of gradually disappearing. Their personality changes, their memory changes, and they're sort of not there at all. So one thing that we deal with all the time is that a lot of the grieving is already done. Families aren't quite aware of that, and often when the patient does die, it's sort of anticlimactic, and the family doesn't seem to grieve that much, and it's almost something that's been awaited for a while. A lot of families are okay with this, and this is an area we have to educate people because a lot of other families tend to feel very, very guilty about why they're, they wish that their loved one would pass away, why they're not crying at this point. Other things happen. Again, we mentioned that there are a lot of behavioral problems that happen. The good news is that most demented patients at the end stage tend to be fairly quiet. They can resist care, but there usually isn't a whole lot of agitation or fearfulness or anything like that. It's difficult to detect if the patient with an end-stage dementia is uncomfortable. Often they will be because they've lost a lot of weight. They can have skin breakdown, which, of course, has to be watched for. They can have aches and pains that have been there for a lifetime, like back problems. And it's very difficult to read whether a person with an end-stage dementia is in pain. Hospice nurses tend to be very, very skilled at this, and families usually pick up on certain sorts of clues. So that's all very helpful. The other tremendously important issue in end-stage dementia is whether all the advanced directives are in place. It's terrible to make decisions about hospitalization or CPR or things like that at the last minute. And we really encourage people very, very early on with the dementia to start thinking about some of these difficult situations. 
Maybe the most difficult we run into is the whole question of tube fitting. As you know, patients with dementia invariably lose weight and they invariably stop eating at the very, very end. And there's always this notion about being able to keep them alive or improve their quality of life by using a feeding tube. All the literature, all the research that's been done points away from that. Basically, tube feeding is not good for quality of life. In fact, it's very, very detrimental to quality of life. It doesn't make people more alert or stronger or feel better or healthier, and it doesn't really, as a rule, prolong life. In fact, it probably increases the risk of pneumonia and hospitalizations. But this is the kind of thing that people really need to decide very early on. It's a very bad thing to wait till the very last minute to make those sorts of decisions. And again, hospice is very good about helping families to make those difficult decisions and understand what the implications are. Quite often when someone reaches the stage of hospice, the family is invited in or needs to come in, and the staff begins to see that there are very chronic, very deep-rooted family problems that may have existed for many, many years. Then a psychiatrist is called in, and the psychiatrist may not be able to address these conditions. The nature of the challenges, the nature of the interfamily problems is so deep. What does a psychiatrist do in a case like this? It's a mighty tough situation, you're right. I think the first thing that a psychiatrist has to do is to prioritize and to make it very, very clear that the number one priority is to maintain the well-being of the patient that's dying and to honor their wishes. One thing that's very, very frightening is when a patient has an advanced directive and for various pathologic family reasons, there are factions in the family. Some are insisting to honor the advanced directive. Others are insisting to maintain life at all costs, to get very, very heroic with things and overly aggressive with things. Or if there isn't an advanced directive, which is all too common in our society nowadays, for different factions in the family to have different notions about what the patient would have wanted. This gets very messy, and I think the first thing we have to do as psychiatrists is to focus constantly on what's best for the patient, what does the patient want, what's your evidence that this is the way that the patient would have wanted to be treated at this stage of his, his or her life. I think that's essential. I think the other thing, the second priority is really try to get some degree of peace, some degree of closure with the patient. You're right. It's often the kind of family problems that we run into are lifelong. They've been there for decades. And certainly in the span of time that we're talking about, we're not going to be able to rebuild the family. Probably wouldn't be able to rebuild the family if we had 20 years. It's a very difficult situation. But focusing the priority on number one, what does the patient want? Number two, some peace and some closure and maybe some agreement to disagree at this point for your father, for your mother, for your loved one. I think those are the important things to do. And it brings up another point as we're talking. Most psychiatrists don't do therapy. I wish they did, but that's subject for another day. This is a situation where people need a lot more gentle talking. They need more time. Make this a complex question. It, it, it speaks to the interdisciplinary aspect of caring someone as they're dying. You need a clergyman, you need uh, a good nurse, and, and so on and so on. Should the psychiatrist be looked at as simply someone doing the medication aspect of calming things, or is there an anticipation, an expectation that the psychiatrist will also be a counselor? I think the nature of hospice and palliative care is that everybody is a counselor. The psychiatrist is no exception. We get to dust off our old psychotherapeutic skills that we all developed in residency. It's a different kind of counseling. It's much more focused. The kind of counseling we do is going to be a lot more focused on specific things. It's a lot more of a problem-solving type approach. And, of course, we have a 
whole lot less time to work in. But I think all psychotherapeutic skills come in handy, and these are also things that we can mentor with the other members of the team. I'm glad that you did mention clergy because this is something that unfortunately, at least when I trained, most residency programs shy away from. You're not supposed to really talk about religion. We got very, very, very little about religion and spirituality when I was a resident. I don't think my program was an exception at all. This is an essential coping strategy for at least half of the population. One third of the population is in church or temple or in mosque every weekend. These are things that you can't ignore, and as people have said, there are no atheists in the trenches. And somebody's religious beliefs, somebody's spirituality, somebody's comfort and faith really, really comes to the forefront at this time. So this is something that can't be shied away from. We collaborate, as a psychiatrist, I collaborate very, very closely with the chaplain to work with our hospice patients, and it's a very, very productive collaboration. Are residents rotated through hospices? It varies. The geriatric medicine fellows at University of South Florida get one month with the hospice program out of their 12-month fellowship. They also have ample experience because a lot of geriatricians are also board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. It's one of those essential skills that you pick up. It's just like most internists know a lot of cardiology. Most geriatricians know a lot of palliative medicine. So this is something they pick up on. The psychiatry residents don't have a required period of training in hospice and palliative medicine. They do some geriatric psychiatry, and I try to introduce them to it. This is as important as being born and college and getting married, having children, and so on. Absolutely. That's absolutely the correct way to think about it. Unfortunately, our trainees are young, and they think of death as this kind of intangible thing that will never happen to them, and one shouldn't talk about it, and it's frightening, and it's very, very far away. But it's absolutely a phase of life, exactly as you mentioned. It's a phase of life just like going off to school or getting married or retiring or anything else. This is such a critical aspect of modern medicine. John Stewart is a psychiatrist at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Abby. It's been a pleasure.